Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Lord God, you are everlasting, and you, our King, will reign forever. We confess that we often forget who you are, what you have done, and we are often not attentive to what you're doing. Today, we remember that you are on your throne. You are a sovereign God who is in control and who reigns with love, justice, patience, and grace. We confess our sins to you this morning, the ways that we've been proud or mean or selfish this last week. We admit that we've missed the mark, and we thank you for your forgiveness. God, we want to continue to lift up the many who are suffering in our world. We think of the people of Afghanistan, and we ask for you to to intervene and to bring peace in that place. We pray for unimaginable strength and endurance for our believing brothers and sisters there. We pray also for comfort and relief for the country of Haiti. And we continue to lift up the many here in California or along the West Coast who have lost homes and livelihoods in the fires. And we lift up all those who are working to fight the fires. God, we pray also for those in our body who are suffering. We each know someone who's hurting or sad. And so we'll individually and silently lift these friends and neighbors and family members up to you in prayer right now. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Lord, we give you the rest of our morning together. We ask for you to help us to fix our eyes and hearts on you. May we be attentive to your voice and the ways that you may be nudging each of us. Make us more and more like you as we hear your word preached and as we connect with each other after the service. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, we're going to turn to scripture again. So let's prepare our hearts for Bernard's sermon. Um, You can just listen. This is from Mark 14, when Jesus is put on trial. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. 
Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Thank you, Christine, and good morning, all. Well, I'm sure we've all been horrified by uh, what we've seen unfolding in Afghanistan over the last uh, week or so, especially the scenes at, uh, in and around the airport, and especially what happened on Thursday with the suicide bomber that, uh, where the death toll is approaching 200, uh, the one who blew himself up. And uh, it's hard to keep track of who is who. So there's the Taliban, and there's Al-Qaeda, and there's ISIS, and now there's ISIS-K. And uh, who's the enemy? Who is fighting whom? It's been very strange to see uh, the armed US troops standing alongside heavily armed Taliban troops, who just a few weeks ago they were fighting. Um, now ISIS formed in uh, 2014 when uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi uh, proclaimed himself the caliph of the Islamic State. And he broke away from al-Qaeda. And then ISIS-K is the branch that is in Afghanistan, or as they call it, in the Khorasan. And Khorasan is, uh, is a name of a former province of the ancient Persian Empire, so they are evoking past glory in picking that name. Um, hinting at what they're aiming for now. And ISIS-K attracts uh, plenty of jihadists from Taliban who think that Taliban has grown soft by signing the agreement last year with the US. And so ISIS-K is uh, fighting the Taliban just as much as it's attacking the US. Now in 2019, al-Baghdadi uh, killed himself as the US was closing in on him in a raid and uh, the end of ISIS was proclaimed, but as we've seen this week, ISIS is alive and well and still capable of wreaking havoc, bringing death and destruction. And uh, we struggle for words to describe what has happened. Um, beastly, subhuman, demonic, so caliphs and caliphates, rulers and empires, kings and kingdoms. This is what the book of Daniel is all about. And today's chapter seven is especially relevant to what has happened this week because it presents a series of beastly, subhuman, destructive empires and rulers that bring death. 
So if you've brought your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Where we read in verse 1, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Now you may notice a number of changes here from uh, the first six chapters that we've covered so far. Uh, we have crossed a seam in the book uh, from the first half into the second half. So I should say a few more things about the structure of the book. There is a, a chronological discontinuity here. The first six chapters comprised six different stories that spanned the reigns of Nebuchadnezzar, chapters one through four, Belshazzar, chapter five, and Darius in chapter six. Then at chapter seven, we take a step backwards, back into the reign of Belshazzar, and we have uh, a series of four visions that occur during the reign of Belshazzar, of Darius, and then of Cyrus. And in the first half, it was Nebuchadnezzar who had dreams, and it was Daniel who interpreted those dreams for him. In these last six chapters, it is Daniel who will have dreams, four of them, and uh, he will be just as puzzled over them as Nebuchadnezzar was, uh, unable to interpret them himself, and instead it will be a heavenly figure who interprets the dreams for Daniel. So these features divide the book into two halves, each of six chapters. But there is another division. Chapters two through seven are in Aramaic, which was the international language of the Babylonian and Persian empires. Chapter one and chapters eight through 12 are in Hebrew. And you'll notice that that division does not match the division between the stories and the visions. And furthermore, as we've seen over the last few weeks, chapters two through seven, the Aramaic chapters, are in a chiastic structure um, that we've been looking at these last two weeks. And so today we look at the second half of the outer envelope of this structure. We look at chapter seven, and it is the counterpart of chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of an enormous statue. And as we've come to expect by now, we'll see that there are numerous parallels between these two chapters, chapters two and seven. Now chapter seven is the most important chapter in the book. It uh, concludes the Aramaic chiastic structure of chapters two through seven, and it also introduces and is the first of Daniel's four visions of chapters seven through 12. And uh, in today's sermon, um, I'm gonna focus just on the first half of the chapter and on how it forms the conclusion, the climax to chapters two through seven, and that will be the end of this block of messages. And uh, early next year sometime, I will resume with a second sermon on uh, Daniel chapter seven, showing how it is the beginning of this series of dreams or visions that Daniel has. So, Daniel has uh, dreams and visions during the night, which he then wrote down. As he does, he writes down all four of his visions. And in verses two through eight, he describes what he saw on earth. And then in verses nine through 14, he describes what he saw in heaven. 
So there is, as it were, you can think of this, there is a lower register and there is an upper register, and we need to keep both of them in mind. We are view, to view the events that happen on Earth in the light of what, is hap what happens up in heaven. So first of all, the lower register. What Daniel sees happening on Earth. Verse two, Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had 10 horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, that may uh, be a familiar chapter to some of you, um, and others of you, it just seems entirely confusing. So the four winds churned up the sea. Now, in normal narrative, the great sea mentioned here is the Mediterranean Sea. But we're not in normal narrative here. We're, this is the description of a dream, of a vision, of an apocalyptic vision that is populated by symbolic creatures and elements. And to us, these elements seem strange, but not so to an ancient audience. They would have recognized all the strange elements of this dream. The great sea is the waters of chaos, present at the beginning of creation, and these disordered chaotic waters threaten to overwhelm the ordered world. And out of these waters of chaos rose four great beasts. Now the first three are described as being like something, like a familiar wild animal. The first like a lion, the second like a bear, the third like a leopard. But the fourth was different. It was not like any natural beast. It was terrifying beyond description. So why beasts and why four of them? Well, these beasts are wild beasts. The lion, the bear, and the leopard were all familiar to the ancient Israelites. We read about them in various places in the Old Testament. There were no tigers, otherwise we could say lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And these wild animals didn't live in a zoo. They weren't uh, confined to a safe place. 
They lived in the wild, disordered land that was beyond human habitation and cultivation. And from there, they raided into the human realm, bringing death and destruction. We read of David fighting the lion and the bear. This qualified him to face the giant Goliath, who was threatening Israel with death and destruction. Now the bear explicitly brings death and destruction. He hasn't even finished devouring his last meal and he is told to get up and devour more, much more. And then the fourth beast is even more ravenous, crushing and devouring its victims. And then the first and the third beasts, the lion and the leopard, are winged. They're hybrid creatures. They're part land animal and part bird. They're a mixture which means that they are disordered. They're from the realm of chaos. They are mongrels. So that's the beasts. Then four, four is the number of universality. And we see this, for example, God describes how he, he sent four disastrous acts of judgment against Jerusalem. The sword, famine, uh, wild beasts, and pestilence. And then changing the metaphor, uh, to that of the wild beasts in particular, God compares his judgment upon his own people to the death and destruction of wild beasts. In Hosea chapter 13, he says, so I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard I will lurk by the path, like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open, like a lion I will devour them, a wild animal will tear them apart. Like a lion, like a leopard, like a bear, a wild animal. These are the same four beasts of Daniel chapter seven that God is using as a metaphor of universal judgment. So what is going on here with this imagery of beasts? Well, back in the beginning, out of the chaotic waters of the unformed primordial sea, God brought order. That's, this is what Genesis one is about. He formed a world which he populated with life, and he created the human to have dominion over this life, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the land animals. You see, Adam was created to rule and to steward the world, living in faithful obedience to God, who had provided everything he needed to flourish. But Adam broke faith and disobeyed. And God expelled humanity from the garden to live east of Eden. And ever since then, creation has been groaning for its true ruler. And Cain, after destroying his brother Abel in death, exiled himself from God's presence, and he went further east of Eden. There he built a city where he could rule, where he could be king of his own domain and empires arose. Death and destruction spread. Order continued to give way to disorder. But out of the chaotic, rebellious disorder of Babylon, God called Abraham. Out of the disorder of Egypt, God called his people, Israel. He brought them into the promised land, the land of order, the new Eden. And he gave them a king after his own heart, one who is able to defeat the lion and the bear, the forces of chaos. But alas, both king and people rebelled against God 
they were unfaithful. And so God brought judgment upon his own people. He removed his presence from among them. He expelled them from the land. He brought foreign empires to possess the land. But these empires were beastly empires. They were not what true rule should look like. The rule intended by God when he created Adam. The rule intended by God when he gave them David as a king and Solomon. And ever since, the world has been waiting for the return of the king. For the arrival of the one true king who will be faithfully obedient and will rule the world in justice and righteousness. One king to rule them all. Now, these four beasts are identified in verse 17 as being four kings. And there is an obvious parallel here to Nebuchadnezzar's vision of chapter two, the parallel chapter in that outer envelope of the chiastic structure. There he saw an enormous statue with a head of pure gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thigh of bronze, legs of iron, and feet partly iron, partly baked clay. And Daniel interpreted this for Nebuchadnezzar. He is the gold head, and the other three parts are three kingdoms. And the parallel between the fourth part of the statue and the fourth beast is particularly close. There's a lot of shared language there. Now, what are the four kings or kingdoms? Well, the gold head of the statue is explicitly identified as Nebuchadnezzar. And I think we can safely say that the first beast is also Nebuchadnezzar. There had been prior empires, but it was Nebuchadnezzar who captured Jerusalem, took the people and the temple vessels captive to Babylon. He, so he is the beginning of God's people living under foreign dominion, living under beastly empire. But Nebuchadnezzar learned an important lesson. God humbled him until he learned that God's dominion, not his own dominion, was the dominion that was eternal. That's what's covered in chapter four, where Nebuchadnezzar becomes like an animal, a beast of the field, and his hair becomes like eagle's feathers. But here in chapter seven, his wings, the wings of the first beast are ripped off. He ceased to be a mongrel beast. He ceased to be this disordered hybrid. Furthermore, he was raised up, this beast is raised up on two feet like a human and given a human mind. Nebuchadnezzar ceased to be a beast. He became truly human because to be truly human is to acknowledge that one is only human, that one is not God, to acknowledge that God is God, even the God of the Jews. So that's the first beast. And opinion is divided on the identity of the other three beasts. And uh, as I said back in, we're looking at chapter two, there are uh, two primary views differing mainly on the identity of the fourth beast. Whether it be Greece, that is the Greek empires of Alexander the Great and his successors, or whether it be Rome. So in this view, either the four beasts are Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece, or they are Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So the big question is, do I identify the fourth beast as Greece 
or Rome. Um, some of you may remember back to chapter two, uh, six weeks ago or so, and how I answered the question then. Um, and so my answer is essentially the same, and it is neither and both. So let me explain. Now, I think the first beast is Nebuchadnezzar specifically, not Babylon in general. Why? Because Belshazzar did not learn his father's lesson. That's the point of chapter five. He remained a beast. The other three beasts are not specific empires, but empire in general. Empire is ravenous. Empire is given dominion. Who gives dominion? Well, it's not stated, but it must be God who grants temporary dominion to earthly empires. So that's the, uh, the neither part, but then the both part, although I do not think that the fourth beast of Daniel's vision or the fourth part of Nebuchadnezzar's statue is either Greece or Rome, I am sure that Jews living uh, in the early second century BC would have identified the rule of the Hellenistic Seleucid Empire as being the fourth beast. And that those living in the first century AD would have identified the Roman Empire as being the fourth beast. So that's the both part. So the beasts represent uh, human empire, human rule gone wrong that brings death and destruction. But there's a second part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two, a rock cut not by human hands hit the feet of the statue. The statue shattered and disappeared. But the rock became a huge mountain filling the whole earth. So also here, there is a second part of Daniel's dream. He sees into heaven, into the upper register. Verse nine, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat his clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So it's an awesome vision of God's throne room. The Ancient of Days, the Eternal God, sat down on his throne, attended by countless courtiers. The court took its seat, the books were opened, and now it's time for judicial ruling from the ultimate authority, the Eternal God. What will the judge say? What ruling will he issue? Verse 11, then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So while the seating of the court is happening in the upper register in heaven, down in the lower register on earth, the little mouth, the little horn was mouthing off. It was full of words, great words, boastful, arrogant words of self-exaltation and words against God and his people. But 
effortlessly. The fourth beast was slain and thrown into the blazing fire, the river of fire that was flowing from God's presence, the river of judgment and final destruction. Suddenly, that terrifying fourth beast is no more. You see, when God calls time, it is over effortlessly. But Daniel sees still more in his dream, verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. One like a son of man. This means that he is truly human. He is very human. In contrast to the sequence of earlier figures that are all like beasts. The beasts rise from chaos and bring destruction. This truly human one will be like the first human, Adam, whom God created to rule over his creation, to bring order. But this human one comes with the clouds of heaven, the clouds upon which God himself rides, God Almighty. And he is given dominion, glory, and power, eternal dominion. All nations and peoples of every language worship him. We've heard this language before. Nebuchadnezzar was given dominion, but he had to learn that this was not eternal dominion. It was granted by God temporarily. And Nebuchadnezzar commanded nations and peoples of every language to worship his image. But he had to learn that that was not an appropriate thing for a mere mortal to do, even the greatest king of Babylon. It was inappropriate. But here is one who is given dominion, eternal dominion, and whose worship by all nations, peoples, and languages is appropriate the one like a son of man. Here is the true ruler for which creation has been groaning since the expulsion of Adam from the garden. Here is the one true king for whom God's people have been waiting since the fall of Jerusalem. One king to rule them all. So who is this one like a son of man? One who is human, truly human, but who rides the clouds like God? Well, with the hindsight of the New Testament, we can answer. It is the risen Lord Jesus. As we heard in our scripture reading from Mark chapter 14, when Jesus was arrested and brought before the Jewish leaders, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest immediately understood the claim that Jesus was making, and he declared it to be blasphemy. The leaders condemned Jesus as worthy of death. The guards took him away and beat him. Jesus submitted to their abuse and scorn. 
Then the Jewish leaders entered into an unholy alliance, a mongrel alliance, a hybrid alliance with the Roman authorities to kill him in the most brutal and shameful way possible. But God has installed this one, despised and forsaken, as ruler of his kingdom and Lord of all. And this good news of Christ crucified is a scandal to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But it is the power and the wisdom of God to those who give their allegiance to Christ, this truly human one. Now Daniel was troubled by what he saw in his vision and he requested an interpretation. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts, the four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Now Daniel has seen the one like a son of man given eternal dominion, and now he is told that the saints of the Most High will also receive this eternal dominion, this kingdom. One like a son of man and the saints of the Most High. These are two new elements who are not in the first half of the book. All the other themes were there. And we'll hear more about the saints in the second half of the chapter. Meanwhile, Daniel wants to know more, verse 19. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast. I also wanted to know about the 10 horns on its head and about the other horn that came up. Some of you no doubt feel the same way. You want to know about the fourth beast, about the 10 horns and about the little horn. But you'll have to wait a few months until we cover the rest of the chapter uh, next year. In the meantime, just comment. As we look at this, it was not appropriate for nations and peoples of every language to worship King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He had to learn that, and it was a hard lesson for him to learn. But it is appropriate to worship the true king, to worship this one like the son of man, to worship this one who is ushered into the presence of the ancient of days to be given eternal dominion. The succession of beastly empires did not end with Greece or Rome. It continues. Or some of God's people live under very beastly regimes. We're concerned for Christians who will be in Afghanistan as the Taliban takes full control. Each week we pray for a different country from off of the Open Doors World Watch list of persecuted Christians. Other countries, it is a bit easier. The beasts rule on earth, but God in Christ has defeated the powers of darkness behind these beastly kingdoms, behind these empires. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is building a truly universal kingdom, even while the kingdoms of this world continue. 
and transferred into God's kingdom in Christ, we are people who formerly didn't belong together, now learning how to belong together in Jesus. We are now family, sharing in one another's lives, the joys and the sorrows, the celebration and the grief, living life together. And today is Connection Sunday, when you can learn about the opportunity to engage in community life together here at PVCC. And together we help one another remain faithful so that we can flourish in God's kingdom while yet living as exiles in a foreign kingdom, in the kingdom of this world, whichever one it is we find ourselves in, in our case here in the US and in the Bay Area. So I invite you after the service then to go out uh, to the tables for Connection Sunday. Connect with one another and connect with the opportunities that we have here to connect with one another. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. May strengthen our hearts so that we will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen. Go and connect.